Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Mentally Unscripted. This is Paul, and I'm here with Scott. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm good. Ready to put the awe back in awesome. Let's go. Ah, <laughs> awe back in awesome. Fantastic. Well, everyone, we're excited today to be talking about voting, because I'm sure no one has thought about voting in the last two months. It's probably something that hasn't even crossed your mind. Or, if you're like everyone else who's been bombarded on every single media channel, it's the only topic that you've thought about. And... As we try to do on this episode and in this channel, we're going to be exploring voting, what it is, why we do it, and ideally, if we do perform voting, uh, what are some ways that we can make the elections less disputable? Uh, because I think if, if there's one takeaway I have uh, from this last election is that there is a high cost to an unknown. In this case, the uh, people that feel either that the election was entirely perfect, uh, that there's no reason to contest it, or people that think it was entirely fraudulent, the, the cost is, is rather high. So the degree that you can put that away, uh, there would be a lot of value to that. So, so Scott, I know we, we talked offline a little bit, uh, but I think we want to start with this idea of voting and democracy. And what it is, why, why do we do it in the first place? So I, I guess I'll, I'll pose that to you. Your thoughts on, I mean, voting, why we need to vote, or whether we should be voting. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Uh, so I've, I'm not an expert in this area, but one thing that I've found interesting is recently I've been reading a lot about the idea of the founding of our country. And, the, I, and there's this idea that supported by a lot of people that the U.S. was not founded to be a democracy. In fact, the, in fact, the, the founding fathers who were fans of Aristotle um, were actually against democracy. And for those of you who don't know, Aristotle, they, he ranked democracy as one of the most perverted forms of government because it leads to a lot of self-interest. And I think it's pretty easy to see that happening now. Um, when we when we look at politicians, it, it, it seems like a lot of elections just come down to you know, which politician is promising the most free stuff to which group in order to get votes. I mean, essentially buying votes, um, if you want to be very cynical about it. And the idea of, in the whole idea of democracy as being, you know, this paragon of virtue and this defending the world for democracy, it really didn't come about until uh, the, the beginning of the Progressive Era in the late 1800s, uh, early 1900s, um, especially with the Wilsonian progressives. And um, I, from what I can, from my research, maybe somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but this idea of defending or making the world safe for democracy, that was really kind of a battle cry to, um, to so to generate support for the U.S. going into World War One, and when you look at when you look at the sides in World War One, it was essentially these new progressive forms of government like the U.S.'s and the U.K.'s against the old monarchies, uh, the, the monarchy, the Habsburgs in Austria, Hungary, um, and the the monarchy in Germany, and and what the war essentially ended up being was the triumph of these new forms of democracy, um, and and destroying these old monarchies. Okay, so, it, so, and my whole point is, is that this idea that democracy is this ideal that we should all, all strive to obtain is, is fairly new in history. And I mm -hmm. think that, you know, again, being cynical, I, th I think the evidence that we're seeing is that Aristotle was right. Like the, democracy just doesn't seem to be the be all to end all. So... Mm -hmm. That would bring us to the next question is like, well, then why do we vote? You know, so the founding fathers, obviously, right, they felt that the people needed some sort of representation in government. So they gave us the House of Representatives, which everyone remember, that was originally the only direct body that the people elected. Senators were originally appointed by the states. Um, and it wasn't again until the progressive era that we changed that through, I forget which amendment it was, um, maybe Paul, you know, but... Uh, we amended the Constitution to allow for the direct election of senators. Um, so, and I tend to agree. I think I think the people do need some representation in government. I think that's that's a very uh, it's a very lofty ideal, and I think it, it's really good because it gives people 
a sense of having some control over the people who who rule them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we've we've talked a little bit before about the illusion of control, and even if we don't have control, even if we know we don't like control, don't have control, like we we still like the sense that we have it. It makes us feel like we we're doing something that we have some say in outcomes over our lives. Um, so, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, I think voting is good, but there's problems inherent in it. And one of the problems is when you allow voting, you can find yourself in a situation where the 51% can vote for the betterment of themselves to the detriment of the other 49%. And then when we talk about fairness, right, is that really fair? If the 51% vote to tax the other 49% at some outrageous rate um, and have those have that wealth get transferred to the 51%, right? Is that really fair, right? So there's 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 a lot of questions that can come up when we talk about voting, which which takes us into um, one of the first one of the let's say first principle A is like who should be allowed to vote, right? Who should be allowed to have uh, a say in the government or a say in the way things are run? Um, so, Paul, I'll kind of take a break there and let you jump in. What I mean, is your understanding of democracy, is that pretty similar to mine? Um, yeah, so it's it's interesting that when I think back to my, my education and, and studying the history of the world, which you know, a lot of it is based on, on Western culture. You, you do, you learn about the, the organization of the, the farms and the feudal system, and then you're going to have, and you have the monarchs, which are governing through this sovereign, um, sort of sovereign, sovereign mark, if you will. I mean, you have this lineage that allows them to have domain over the people that are assumed to have no power. And what I found interesting in the last couple of years reading about those periods in time was how you had private militaries uh, that would be raised by by these governments to work on their exploits. So they couldn't get the the, the population to go and fight the wars for them, but they could get a banker to basically fund their their army so that they could go out and, and battle. And as you move into the last couple, several hundred years, some of that becomes more difficult. Uh, and so the idea of suffrage becomes a way in which we can offer up this representation for exchange of us having the human capital to go out and, and conduct our, our military activities. And so if, if you put it through that lens, you start to wonder what, what, what has been the value of voting over time and that representation. Uh, that's that's one way of looking at it. I think there's another side of it that's very personal to me as someone who doesn't like to be told what to do, resistant to that. The idea that I would have no representation in decisions uh, that would govern me is very frustrating <laughs> at a core level. So I find it difficult to, to say, well, I, I can give up the, the representation argument. There's There's another side of it, too that I think we're going to explore now, which is this idea of how, if, if you're making decisions of a complex nature, you're voting in people, uh, this idea that I've got representation to decide on who's going to represent me. And yet we're, we're in a, an information war that is constantly sending out noise uh, that's wrapped around a bit of signal. And we're constantly trying to distinguish what that is and, and if you have that kind of uh, signal noise ratio problem, how do you know that you're voting on the right people? And how do you know that the people that are voting on those people are able to do it in an educated way? And that is a challenge. I, I don't think it gets discussed enough, or if it is, maybe I'm not part of those discussions or I'm reading about it, because a lot of the discussions that you hear about are going to be about uh, ability to, to vote, uh, voter access, so getting more people to the ballot, not less. Um, and then uh, you're you're talking about election rigging. Well, what, I think what I'd really like to be interested in is who should be allowed to vote. Now, at the founding of the country, the people that were allowed to vote, it was very limited, right? The, the idea was that we wanted to give representation to people, as you said, at the House, but it really came down to white landowner males. Uh, so it was 
Again, very limited. That expands over time. And you're asking what their skin in the game is. Well, you have land, you have ownership, you, um, you're going to be taxed. Therefore, because you are going to be taxed, we're going to um, allow you to have some, some say. Now we have taxes that have expanded significantly in all directions, uh, used to, depending on how you look at the usage of taxation, used to pay for programs, used to um, equalize society, if you will, uh, from, the, from the, those who are outliers in terms of income and, and what they provide. But, uh, but now, what the, the other question is, well, what skin in the game do people have other than being citizens? Right? And is citizenship sufficient for you to be able to vote? Should there be other uh, markers? And then this, this is going to uh, frustrate or sound very, very similar to those questions to, to the tools and techniques that were used to preclude blacks from voting in, in the, uh, the 20th century. Um, you know, questions like literacy tests, uh, questions like, um, you know, identification, but the literary test is one. And that's, that's not at all what I'm saying in, in the sense that, you know, excluding a group, a specific group, uh, is to me, uh, the, the antithesis of what we would want to see in the 21st century in which we're, we're allowing, uh, people to, to flourish to the best of their abilities as individuals. Uh, but then you have the other side of it. Should someone who doesn't understand about healthcare at all and the systems that sit behind it or the banking sector at all, and they have a politician who says, well, I'll give you $2,000 uh, in your checking account every single month if you vote for me, they don't ask the second and third order consequence questions. They don't understand why that could be that could put excess stress on these various uh, systems and networks. Are they really in a position to make that vote? Right. So... What, what are your thoughts on whether or not, you know, being an 18 and a citizen is sufficient for you to be able to vote? Yeah, I, uh, to, a quick answer to your question is no, that you need more than that. Um, you know, when you were talking, the first thing that you mentioned, it, it brought up, um, there's a book called Democracy, The God That Failed by Hans Hermann Hoppe. Um, and, mm-hmm. it, and it went into a lot of, um, it discussed a lot of the, the issues like around war. And what war was like with the monarchy versus war um, with the more representative forms of government. Um, mm-hmm. and so I don't want to get too deep into it, but that really supports what you were saying is that um, one of his arguments was that war, the costs of war were much higher when it was a king who had to finance it himself. And um, the wars, you didn't see, you know, 20 some odd year long wars going on because the king would run out of money. So they had an incentive to, if they did fight the war, you know, to, to pull the string on it once it became apparent that they, that it was a losing proposition, um, mm. you know, so that's, uh, so that's just kind of an interesting aside. So that was the democracy that got the failed by Hans Hermann Hoppe. It's a, it's a good read. Um, even if you're a, a staunch supporter of democracy, it's some good arguments against it, uh, mm-hmm. that, um, that can maybe kind of help uh, just sort of uh, enlighten your view there. Um, now, to, to your question about who should vote, um, no, 18 and being a citizen is not sufficient in my view. Uh, I, you know, we don't need the wholesale blocking of any particular groups. So, um, you know, I, you know, so I think people who don't own land or, or who are not net taxpayers, right, there should still be an avenue for them to be able to vote. Um, so I kind of look at it like this, kind of back to what I was saying before, it's like the people who have something to gain versus the people who have something to lose. So the people who, you know, the, the net taxpayers, the net positive taxpayers, or I guess, yeah, that would be a net tax taxpayer, um, the property owners, right, the people who are going to be paying the more in, the, in taxes to support the system, that they should obviously have the ability to have a say in how those taxes, how much taxes are collected and how they're spent. But I think also, um, you know, there's there's a lot that people, you know, maybe, you know, kids coming just out of, right out of college who maybe aren't at that level yet, um, you know, they can have a lot to contribute. So we need to have an avenue for them to be able to vote. And mm-hmm. here, I think it's knowledge. 
you know, not necessarily literacy, but like you said, you know, understanding economics. Um, I've sent out, uh, I think people who follow me on Twitter, I've tweeted a couple times, like reading a book like Economics in One Less Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, like should be a requirement for voting because it kind of lays out the idea of opportunity costs and uh, all the second order consequences to some of these economic policies that are being pushed today. Um, so just, you know, some, and I don't know how we would do that, right? I, I haven't thought deep yeah. enough into that. I don't know if we would have like a standardized test that people could take to, to establish like some baseline understanding of economics or something. Um, but you, you really need trans, you need knowledge. Um, you you yeah. need to, to understand you need to have the ability to dissect what the politicians are telling you, what they're promising, um, and the the second order consequences of their of their policies. Um, and yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. That you you're going to struggle if <laughs> you, the people that are voting, um, the, the the people that have to pay, are, are much greater. They're a larger portion of the population. Right when it comes to the taxation aspect of it, but then again, the, the skin in the game—they're not the ones that are actually having to pay it. So there, there's this asymmetry. Now, I, I've, I've heard the argument, and we should discuss that here. You know, this is a, this is about a population argument that the 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 population that's getting screwed because they don't have opportunities are voting in themselves opportunities um, by by taxing and, and we're, we're focused on taxes but it, it, it i think it extends far beyond taxation yeah i think uh, but taxation is that it, that's kind of the part of government that just reaches out and touches everybody i think right the most right. Um, absolutely and, and so and, and that's an area that's easily influenced too i mean politicians can mm-hmm. um you know they can they can get taxes changed it seems like fairly easily they, they can't, you know, get a stimulus bill through, but they can they can get your taxes changed <laughs> the drop of a hat, apparently. Or, That's right. Um, um, but, but how do you square that argument, the one that focuses on, uh, which, which I feel is more of a socialist argument, um, kind of a, a 20th century thinking for the 21st century, in some respects, not all of them, but in some, where someone says, listen, if we just... Um, the, the wealthy have accumulated this wealth through a lack of opportunity for the bottom part of the population, which is in dire straits. So if we take some of the, the richness from that group and we funnel it into the bottom third or fourth, or whatever that number is, we can effectively make for a richer society. So the people that are at the bottom, when they're voting to tax, they're, they're, they're voting on a richer society, a better society. Do you, does that argument uh, at all hold water with you? No, it doesn't. Um, so, first off, this, when you're talking about doing that, like, I mean, I agree, like, the better off, the more opportunities that we give everyone, the better off society is, right? Rising tide raises mm-hmm. all ships. The question comes in is, is the government the best institution to do that? Or are there better ways to do it? Can we let the private sector do it through private charities, private organizations? Um, and I, to me, yeah, no, the government is not the best way to do that. Because, mm-hmm. you know, so it's it's early January, right? We're all going to be paying our taxes soon. Do you know the taxes that you pay? Do you know what they're going to pay? Can you tell me what every dollar in tax that you give the government, what it's going to? Right? right. You can't. So you have no idea if that money that you're putting into the system is actually going to help people. And if it is, in what way? You know, yeah. how much of that money is going to support, again, like, you know, this 20-something year war in Afghanistan that we're getting absolutely nothing out of. So right. that's, that's one of the problems is that there's no transparency in governmental spending. Uh, whereas if you were able to pay fewer taxes or pay less of taxes, but then take a chunk of that money and donate it to the, uh, you know, local, local better business bureau or something that is actually helping people set up businesses in your community, right? You would know where that money was going and mm-hmm. you, you could have, you know, actually a more personal connection to the people who are making the decisions about that money. And you could even maybe get involved with the organization and exert some sort of influence over that. 
Yeah. Uh, which, you know, and as a, a quick aside, this is one of the maybe like in our notes for this for the show, I kind of listed this as Scott's first first principle, and that is you know the reason why elections are it's. Is the reason why there's such a big deal is because of the amount of gov- power that we've given the government, right? We've mm-hmm. given the government so much power that these elections have become incredibly high stakes, which gives people a huge incentive to try to cheat, to try to game the system, to try to create rules that benefit them. So maybe if we step back and started taking some of the power from the government, uh, like in like in the case of what you were saying, like the idea of, of funneling money down to people in the lower strata of society to give them opportunities, take that power away from them, then maybe these elections become less valuable, and then the incentive mm-hmm. to cheat goes down. And then, you know, maybe we reach a point where most people don't even know who their re- local or who their elected representatives are, you know? I mean, <laughs> wouldn't it be great to be in a situation where you're like, um, Trump, who's that? Wait a minute. Is he still president? Yeah. Wait a minute. What happened? <laughs> there was an election last right. year? I don't know. You know, it, yeah. I mean, in my view, it'd be great to just be able to go on about your life and to not have that something like that be the sole focus or a central focus for months, even nowadays, years of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and but we're not there. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, we are. Like we're in a situation where I saw something recently, and I tried to find it, and I couldn't. So the. I can't really source this. So if someone knows, has a source for this or has a better number for me, definitely let me know. But I saw somewhere where they were saying that the presidency this year is going to be worth approximately a trillion dollars to the winning party. Um, not, well, not, the, not the winning candidate, but the winning party um, in the right. form of campaign contributions and, and all the, you know, the corporate back scratching and all that that's going to come out of it. So, uh, you know, this is why elections matter is because yeah. there's so much power involved in them. And this is why we saw a situation in 2016 with, you know, the losing side claiming that the Russians interfered in the election. And then mm-hmm. now in 2020, the losing side claiming that the winning side was engaged in voter fraud and all kinds of mm-hmm. things. And unfortunately, I think this is just par for the course now. I think yeah. every election, the, the losing side is going to claim some sort of, fraud uh, well to your point they're actually incentivized to to contest it because the prize it's it's a it's a zero-sum game right i mean either one one wins the other the other um the other loses one gets a trillion the other gets zero right so yeah you're 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 incentivized to go as hard as you can in the paint to take out the the opponent yeah and and what do we always say incentives matter yeah. Incentives matter. That's right. Hey, that's the first time on this on this yeah. <laughs> podcast. So, um, yeah. So um, yeah. So that was just a quick aside. But no, I mean, it, 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 getting back to your question. Um, it, so in the world that we live in, uh, that's why I wanted to give the path to voting to people who weren't in the higher economic strata of society, the people just starting out, they still have the opportunity to vote, right? It's just they they need to do a little more, right? They need to show that they have the knowledge to make an intelligent decision. Um, yeah. and, and I'm not saying that you have to have to make a particular decision, right? But you just have to be able to deconstruct the promises, understand what the trade-offs are of what you're being told, uh, not just look at the shiny prize, that you'll get for right. casting your vote. Well, yeah, it's it's a it's a difficult problem, and I remember studying in philosophy courses. Same thing that you mentioned about Aristotle about the idea of a benevolent dictator being the ultimate form of uh, government because you can be efficient in what you can accomplish, but you're actually focused on the well-being of your citizens right. or. You know, yeah. whatever you want yeah. to call them. Yeah, unfortunately. The problem yeah, the is how do you actually, yeah, how do you build in? And what's interesting, over, over the years, I've had conversations with people that just claim that if their party wins, everything will be fine. And they've, they've bought the fallacy that their party, 
not, not, a, not even an individual, but the party is the benevolent dictator. And I do think it's a fallacy because I'm not sure who you can point to in history that would be that, that individual. I mean, Marcus Aurelius is one that comes to mind who was engaged in battle. And do, do we really lift him up? Uh, even though I think a lot of us uh, can admire his, his work on Stoic philosophy, but did he reduce the harm and increase the richness in his society? I, couldn't tell you. Right, right. I, honestly, I, I don't. I don't know enough about it. Yeah. Perhaps was, was but, he really defending Rome, or was he being the aggressor? And, right, because he was pretty much well, at war during his entire reign. His yeah. yeah, his entire reign. And and there there you have the issue of the benevolent dictator hypothesis that you can um, or or belief that somehow we can have that in our society. Uh, and so I, I almost default back to the democracy out of lack of options, right? And so maybe it's a question of do you get, as you said, you have multiple layers of skin in the game that allows you to contribute and allows you to have a say, uh, but then questions about what, what kind of level of say. I mean, and, and that, that creates a complexity that perhaps at some point in the future, you're able to give people the representation and the opportunity and the ability to um, con- contribute, at, you know, at, at, at a broader level, without the cost of being able to uh, be coerced in the voting cycle, right? Being able to be bought off by the promise. I mean, in the case of uh, the election that was held on January sixth in Georgia, the uh, to be president. I'm just going to start calling him President Biden made the promise that 10000 or I think it was $2,000 stimulus checks would be going out to people if they won the Senate. Yeah. Now, <laughs> yeah. if that doesn't sound like a bribe of the kind that we're talking about at the beginning of this podcast, I'm not sure what would sound like a bribe. Um, and, and there's legitimate arguments for that $2,000. We've had uh, an unbelievably slow year based on lockdowns, based on just uh, illness, the fact that we're all trying to cope with remote work, you you can make a very sound argument for giving people $2,000. You could also make a sound argument for opening up the economy. You can make a sound argument for other, other aspects or other ways of dealing with the problems that we've been experiencing now for, for at least the last year. And But that doesn't take away from the fact that when politicians are using these as chips on the table, you have they're they're designing the systems of incentives, or, or and even if they're reacting to them, they're doing it in a high stakes way. So it, it you know, coming back to this idea, how do we have skin in the game? I, I guess perhaps we don't know how to design it differently than we do today. Um, I mean, I, I know that there's changes, and we, we can get into that a little bit later in this conversation. Maybe some smaller changes that we could make that would help the incentive structure be perhaps more transparent. Uh, and less gameable, but I, I'm not sure that I actually have an alternative to to democracy. And I'm not even sure if I have an alternative today that I could propose as an alternative to the 18 year old and citizen, even though I see the flaws in it, and, and I think they're what we're discussing. Exactly. Um, right. And, you know, the the question would be, how do we get back to more of a polity, which would be a you know a rule by many that's more benevolent, right? How do we get mm-hmm. away from more of the self-interest? And, you know, maybe maybe this is one of the problems with having a strong central government is that the the representatives that we elect are, they spend most of their time in D.C. They're so far removed from their, their districts that they, are they really representing their districts or are they mm-hmm. representing um, just the, the power structures that helped get them elected. Uh, yeah. You know, so, you know, maybe if we push the authority back down to the states, um, which was kind of the, the way the, the government was originally constructed, um, mm-hmm. so that the states had much more authority than the central government. Um, you know, maybe, maybe more localized, more emphasis on localized governments um, would be the way to go. Because um, then then hopefully the representatives would be a little more responsive or the, or the elected officials would be more, more responsive to the people. 
Um, yeah. I, I mean, I can tell you, I know who our representative, who my representative is in the U.S. House, but I have no idea who my representative is in the Colorado State uh, right. Legislature. Uh, so. well, and, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I agree. And reading works, uh, books by Taleb has really has me thinking a lot about those different layers of contribution and where you should be focused. And yeah, to sum it up, I think it's basically what's around you immediately should receive the, the overwhelming amount of your attention. Right? If you want to solve the world's problems on, on the environment, start by making sure what you do in your own home is the best that you can do. Um, and if you, and, and, you know, taking that step further, kind of the Jordan Peterson conversation, clean your room. You know, you're, you're, if you're the person telling people to go out there and they should be cleaning up cities and your room looks like a, uh, you know, it was is inhabited by a six-year-old, then perhaps you need to, t- to do some self-reflection before you, you try and start telling everyone else how, you, how they should live. Um, and, and that does go back to this idea of like local politics does have a lot of value. There's a, there's a default belief that so many of the problems we're facing today, and you hear about them all the time. I know we've talked about them, like climate change, um, I would say the CCP, um, inequality are so large that there's nothing that can be done locally, uh, that they, they require a coordinated mechanism, the central government and, and actually beyond the central government, some people believe that need to be done more at the UN level. So a global type of initiative. And you look at that and you think to yourself, how, how far removed are they from the problems of someone's dealing with a small town in, in the middle of Montana? Uh, where you know, they're dealing with day-to-day food shortage or they're dealing with day-to-day you know, lack of jobs. And are they, do, does the UN care about that? Probably not. That's not how they're going to look at the problems, but that's the problem of the individual that's challenged by it. Right. So you, it, it does suggest to me that more localization could have a positive impact, more, in, more emphasis on local elections and, and, and perhaps there's ways in which uh, the incentive structures between the local and the, and the federal, if you're, if you're moving more power to the local, you've got benefits, I think, to that. Um, and then you, you, if, you're, if you're moving resources in some way, you also as well, because those resources, uh, you always have to be on guard that they're not politicized because that is the, that's the default, I think, path because you don't have benevolent dictators. Everyone's working in incentivized environments. So you have to be looking at it and saying, okay, how do we how do we govern locally? How do we have that? How do we take on the responsibility of that additional power? How do we make some changes? Um, but yeah, lots 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 to consider there. So I, th- I think what we're saying is we'd love to have people that have skin in the game be able to make decisions. We we're not entirely sure how we would make that happen today. Um, perhaps making it more of a local versus a centralized is a way to bring more of that power to the to the population, and that. And I, I think that's just a phenomenal point that you're making about the fact that the fact that the stakes are so high in these elections mean that we're we're not really more engaged. We're 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 better informed at the at the noise. But I don't feel like many of us feel like we have a better say in what's going on. We're more civically minded. Um, so we're not actually getting more out of high stakes elections. Right. And and we to your point about the noise, like how do we we don't have a good mechanism for separating the the wheat from the chaff, I guess, so to speak. The the, yeah. the accurate information from the noise, uh, especially with the high incentives. Um, you mm-hmm. know, CNN and MSNBC and those places, right? They had there's a huge incentive for them to bring you biased news coverage or flat out <laughs> flat out incorrect news coverage um, yes. in order to uh, in order to sway people one way or another. Um, and when, when we talk about the actual voting mechanism, like one of the one of the principles that I noted here was how do we report the results? Um, mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll get to that. But, you know, quickly, there was a lot of accusations of some of the news channels reporting results early in order to try to sway mm-hmm. people who hadn't voted yet. Right. So is that something that we want to be doing? Uh, and again, how do you because CNN calls a state for a particular candidate? Does that really mean the candidate won the state? You know how yeah. how how, uh, how much can we count on that? Um, yeah. So 
Um, yeah, transparency and I, I mean, in order for democracy to to work, probably the, the one foundational principle, the foundational principle that you need for it is information. Um, you know, I know there's a there's been a couple studies that have shown have had more people known about the Hunter Biden laptop before the election. Um, there's a strong indication that Trump would have won, would have won the election. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, like you know, the suppression of this information that came out, apparently from from what what some people are saying, it definitely uh, swayed the results of the election. Uh, yep. So that's that's a challenge. Yes, and uh, I know we, we didn't intend to get into a discussion on big tech media as we uh, as we share our thoughts on, on some of these platforms, but it, 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 is a, it is a question for the 2020s. How do we navigate threading the needle of having free speech for allowing people to share information and also uh, having enough protection so that we're not dealing with pedophilia and other types of speech, if you will, uh, that I think is is by and large considered something outside the Overton window, something something that's considered outside of acceptable norms. And and we're we're at a we're at a very interesting crossroads on that point. But what did we see in this last election? Was uh, in some cases we saw complete censoring of information through our primary channels, uh, where if you talking about COVID in a certain way, the New York Post article that was completely censored off of Twitter. Um, And so we saw some of that. Then we saw this other example where they were fact-checking information and adding asterisks on on some of these channels. Uh, And now, of course, in the last week, uh, we've seen other actions taken by Twitter and Facebook as a result of the the January 6th storming of the the, uh, legislator in in Washington, D.C., where I think all of those, regardless of whether you agree or disagree with what the what action was taken by the media platforms, I think it's I think I don't know that anybody could argue that there's no impact from the action that they took, and that uh, we should be asking ourselves what is the appropriate choice because the, it, democracy dies, and and again as we said earlier in this in this conversation, we don't have an alternative right now for it that we would propose. So democracy dies without information. And we have examples in the world today from Iran to the CCP of what happens when people are not educated and controlled. And, you know, the, then the example of Hunter Biden being is an interesting one where you you can say, well, these, these social media platforms aren't really the uh, aren't really that impactful for getting this information out there. But then you ask yourself, well, then why would these why were these channels censoring this information, especially when it comes out now that there's more questions about it. And some of those same media outlets have now retracted and point out that maybe there are some issues here. Uh, it seems that they're, they're playing a game with us. Um, so, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think they certainly were had an agenda in, in trying to restrict access to that information. Um, and now that the information will be less damaging, uh, you know, they're willing to uh, draw some attention to it. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I know we're about 40 minutes in, but uh, we can spend a little bit of time talking about this idea of manufacturing consent. I know you've raised that to me. I haven't read the book. Um, I believe it was a book co-authored by Noam Chomsky in which he presented this idea. And yeah. Yeah. Can, maybe you want to share your idea of, of the, the concept and why it's impactful. Yeah, um, so I haven't read Manufacturing Consent either. Um, I did read Matt Taibbi's Hate Inc., um, which okay. uh, I think came out last year, maybe the year before. Um, and he's he's kind of styled it on a, as being sort of a modern update to Manufacturing Consent. Um, so uh, Matt Taibbi is a journalist. He used to work for Rolling Stone, and uh, I believe he's independent now. Um, uh, but he's he's a left-leaning journalist um, and he's a great person to, to follow and pay attention to he um, I think he takes a very reasoned approach to what's going on in the world um, but he was in in hate Inc he kind of he tells a story of his time on the campaign trail following campaigns and just uh, how much influence the media has on 
the public and the concerted effort by certain media outlets to uh, create a certain narrative. Um, and he, he talks a little bit about how uh, the the media in some circles of the media kind of blame themselves for the election of Trump in 2016 by the way they covered the Trump campaign and by how much attention that they gave to the Trump campaign, uh, you know, under the idea that, um, Trump would have been the easiest person for Hillary to defeat. So if they were going to cover Republicans, they were going to cover Trump. Um, and then also, um, they also, uh, the media was also responsible for reporting that, you know, Hillary had like a 98% chance of winning. So there's some thought that maybe, um, all of those stories sort of suppressed the turnout for Hillary, which allowed Trump to win. Um, since everybody thought that Hillary had it in the bag. Uh, I did. I, I did not expect Trump to win. No, I didn't either. I was, I was, I was over in Europe, uh, during the election and I remember waking up in the morning and turning on the news CNN and just seeing the results going what am <laughs> I watching here yeah. and, uh, we went outside later in the day we were in Germany and there was a group of young kids out and they, were, <laughs> they knew we were Americans there was a whole group of us and they were kind of laughing at us <laughs> about Trump being our new president so it, 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 news made it around the world pretty quickly um, uh, yes yeah. it does so, um, so anyway um the whole idea is that the, the media creates this narrative, okay? Mm-hmm. And this, this is the narrative that they want you to see. It's sort of kind of like there's the two worlds, right? There's the real world, and then there's this world that's created by this corporate political structure. And, right. and I think we can kind of see that, right? You, you, you turn on CNN or MSNBC or Fox, and you, you see a lot of stories about rampant racism and about, um, you know, all the, the devastation from COVID, but then you walk outside and you don't really see it, right? You, right. you, you know, there are people aren't out in the street fighting each other. There aren't dead bodies laying on the side of the roads. So you, so you, you have to learn to separate the two. Um, yeah. And, and the idea is that, you know, this, this is a conscious decision by these media outlets to create this narrative in order to get people to act a certain way. And they create yeah. what they call the Overton window. And the Overton window, it's just, it, it's, it's the realm of allowed discussion. So as long as you're discussing something, as long as you're discussing something within the Overton window, the media will allow that on the airwaves. Um, they'll, they'll, they'll not censor it. But as soon as you start saying things that go outside of the Overton window, then you immediately get cut off, right? You don't get a voice. Um, so for example, uh, like we were talking about earlier, like taxes to kind of help minorities get more opportunities. So Mm -hmm. inside the Overton window would be discussing whether we should have more taxes or lower taxes for this, how much and which agencies should do it. But going outside of the Overton window would be like what we said is, well, should the government even be doing this anyway? Right. Mm -hmm. So the idea that government should not be involved in this is outside of the Overton window and probably wouldn't get much play on mainstream media. Well, and then on top of that, they they can add the asterisks of this is a conspiratorial type of thinking. So when you have, uh, I think about the Tea Party, uh, the arising of the Tea Party and people saying less taxes, less government, this was viewed as a group of people that are conspiratorial, that are just anti-establishment, right? right. And, and, and there's various, you find this over history, if you read about the, the anti-groups, if you will, they are labeled a certain way by the media, depending if they're considered useful or not. And, and you know, I, I did read the, the opening statement or basically the, the opening viewpoint from uh, the book, Manufacturing Consent. And you know, the only thing I would add to what you shared was this, this viewpoint that the sponsors of these media outlets are uh, indirectly controlling these aspects of it. So they are in, in, um, indirectly controlling the, the width of the Overton window and, and where it's shifting. Uh, the the topics and and they go on to say it's not just the the narrative that's talked about at the newsroom, but the 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 experts that are provided that would actually provide support for these ideas. Exactly. So yeah. 
I think they, they talk about it in a, in a, a rather, it's almost this decentralized um, or decentralized centralized, which I know is, is you can't have the two combined. But you can imagine, um, especially in the, in the when the book was written, I believe it was in the 80s, maybe the 90s, maybe earlier, you're, you, had, you had more distribution of media channels. It's, it's concentrated quite a bit since then. And at that time, you have all these sponsors. Well, the sponsors are going to have different beliefs and views on what, sh- what is actually considered part of that Overton window and what should be discussed. Um, so in, in that way, it's more decentralized, right? Or you have more variety or variation. What you have now is it's actually collapsed down to a, a much smaller set of news centers, at least for traditional. I realize there's distributed networks that we have um, through other channels, but they've actually collapsed down. Uh, and so you still have that censoring, if you will, of these ideas based on your sponsorship. And if you, you, you can see this happening in real time when um, sponsors pull out of different types of shows. And so uh, Ben Shapiro is a good example, I'll take him, uh, where sponsors have dropped him at certain periods in the last 18 months because of his stance on the, the BLM protests slash riots that occurred last summer. And so that's, that's exactly how that plays out. Um, and th- that's their version of it. A, a secondary version of it is from Eric Weinstein, which he calls his distributed information suppression complex, which I, I, at least when I read it, to me, it sounded very similar, which is basically rather than having the, the sponsors saying this is what we want to talk about, you now have a group of people that don't want to be outside of the tribe. And it's typically left-leaning politics, but it could be on the right. I don't think it's unique to one side or the other. But right now, those are the people that are running these media stations. And they, they feel as though they can't allow certain discussions to happen because they'd be going against their core principles. He uses this DISC idea. Uh, so rather than having sponsors, you just have individuals that are doing it. But he uses the DISC idea to discuss why candidates like Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard did so poorly in the uh, in terms of coverage in terms of the uh, the Democratic primaries I, I think it's an interesting idea I'm not sure if the data supports or, or uh, denies his claim I think you see it happening when you talk to people so it's easy to feel as though it's an accurate depiction um, and everything that you've shared Scott it's like we're being gaslit every day hey you know, and I, I remember the first time of gaslighting in my mind, if, if that's the right term for it, was in the first Gulf War in 1990. There was a media representative from the Iraq government who would stand up and talk to the press corps about what they were doing to defend the country during Desert Storm, um, after Desert Shield. And he would talk about how they were going to go and annihilate everybody. And behind them, there's bombs going off, destroying all of his infrastructure. And... You, it felt like a comedy sketch if it wasn't so tragic, right? Because you know the, the, the human cost of, of that war, of, of any war. But you're going, I, I don't even have words to describe this. There's no way that I can believe you. And yet this is exactly what we're seeing. When, and we saw that last summer where people, there's flames and buildings flying, you know, burning down. And someone says, well, it's, it's a peaceful protest. You're going, oh, okay, so that's just a random fire behind me you don't want to report <laughs> Mostly on. peaceful cool. protest, yeah. Yeah, and then, <laughs> and then you see the – I mean, could you imagine if someone someone from January 6th was videotaping all these people rushing into um, rushing into Congress, taking over this building, as you will, picking up this and said, well, these, these people just wanted to have a conversation. And, you know, there was there, – it was, not, it was a non-event. Nothing actually happened. Whether you, whether you agree with the event or not, to say it's a non-event, you're looking and they're going, well, that's just not true. You have videotape of, what, of what's happening, what, whether it was as dangerous or not. Well, four people died, but really it's just, it's really a non-event. So again, there's there's consent, there's the, the incentives, and, and how that consent actually happens to suppress information is is something that everyone should be aware of. Yeah, and it's, it's become incredibly blatant too. Um, I don't know if you ever saw it, but... Uh, 
John Stewart did a bit. It was either during the 2008 or 2012 election, uh, the Republican primaries, where the the news media just would not say Ron Paul's name. <laughs> he just he had clips of the the media like putting up like um, uh, primary results, and it'd be like number one was Rick Santorum. Then you know you'd see Ron Paul's name on the screen at number two, but they would skip right over and go. And at number three is blah blah. It's number four, right? And he ended up likening Ron Paul to the thirteenth floor of a hotel, right? We just kind of pretend ah. like it's not there. Um, I'll put a link to that. I think that video, I think that clip is still up on YouTube. I'll put a link oh to it. But it, it. It was just hilarious how they would just pretend like the guy just didn't exist. Um, it, it would be up on the screen, but boy, they they would not even say his name. So. Oh yeah, yeah. So this 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 idea of trying to control the narrative and to be so blatant about it, um, you know, it, it's almost like you know, <laughs> don't don't look at what I'm doing, just listen to what I'm saying. Uh, and we kind of <laughs> talked about that recently in our hypocrisy episode about uh, the, the politicians with COVID. It's like, uh, you know, COVID super dangerous is going to kill everyone. Um, it, don't worry that it's you know that um, out you know, getting my hair done. Um, you know, yeah, listen to what I say, not, not watch what I do. And, and people need to realize that they can hate the media. Uh, they can be very frustrated by it and feel, uh, honestly, to be a victim of it. The cost of this reporting and the way in which it's conducted is extremely high because it's possible that a news outlet, and I'm going to take the New York Times as an example because I shared this with a friend recently. I have a very low trust level of the New York Times, and that's not because I actually think it's very likely that most of what they report is factually accurate. However, when they get it wrong, the costs are so high and, and so blatant that it makes it very difficult for me to read the other aspects of what they report. I know it's a left-leaning news publication. That's That's never been hidden from me. And, and it's and when they do admit that they got it wrong, that gets very little coverage. It, it doesn't receive the coverage yeah. that it deserves. Yeah, they, they and, do, do not do their updates in a in a way that makes people actually um, update the information. And and so the problem becomes when you're sharing information back and forth between citizens or individuals, and they start having the heuristic is basically like, I'm biased against anything you're going to share me share with me because I can't trust the source. And part of that, that, that cost is, is coming from what they've done to manufacture this consent. It's not, you know, if, if you feel as though they are, act, they are actively reporting, I mean, take, take anything that the New York Times has said about Trump in the last four years and find me the articles that were sympathetic to his policy, not the man, but the policy. And I don't think I've seen anything on, on the, the the biggest challenges, I mean, the stuff that he did to ban CRT or to talk about the CCP, every single thing that he did on the CCP was wrong. I've never seen anybody say he's got a point about X or Y or Z. The Paris Accords that allow China to basically continue to pollute while the rest of us have to take a handcuff, right? Put handcuffs on our hands, right? I, I can understand you wanting to get back into the Paris Climate Accord if you believe that that climate change is the number one external threat and we have to have a, a global solution, you, sh- you can also be critical and, and highlight the fact that tr- while Trump may have done the wrong thing, he has a point. And I've just never seen it. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I'm also biased at this point after seeing everything that I have. And again, this is me saying, I think they're probably factual about many of the things that they report. Exactly. And in, I forget if we talked about it on the podcast or if we just talked about it out, uh, offline, but, you know, you can be factual but not be truthful. Uh, yes. You know, and as you were talking, the one example that I uh, that came to mind is the New York Times ran the story about uh, the Putin, the Russians paying off Taliban, paying a bounty on mm-hmm. to the Taliban for the for U.S. soldiers. And. I forget where I heard it. It might have been on the Scott Horton podcast. He was talking about this. But if you read the New York Times article, they don't actually say that Putin, that we have evidence that Putin was doing this. He was just saying that people in Washington and in the intelligence agencies are saying 
that Putin was doing this. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's truthful. Yeah, people were saying it. Okay. But then when other people were picking up that article and writing their own stories about it, that truthfulness, that factual correctness got lost and it became Putin is paying. Right. It, it, it was no longer, telephone. you know, government officials think that Putin may be paying. It became Putin is paying. Right. It became a fact. Right. right? So right. and a lot of people like when you read the article, if you read it closely and you look at the wording, you see, yes, it's actually it's very factual. Right. He's not saying mm-hmm. that, that it's established that Putin is paying the Taliban to kill go to go U.S. soldiers. But then, as it worked its way through the media and through our culture, right, that's what it turned into. Right. And, you know, there's some question about, you know, is there a lot of journalistic integrity in writing a story like that, knowing full well what's going to happen? Yeah. I, I obviously, I have a very low trust of the information that I receive. I, I, it makes it difficult. There's a high cost to trying to understand the truth, which is you have to triangulate across multiple sources. You have to be able to look at the topic and understand what the uh, what 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 could be the most likely outcome of what's actually happening. It's difficult. It's it's expensive, and we're incentivized on our on our social media platforms to be continuously engaged, and so we're constantly digesting more noise, less signal. We're we're having to go out there and try and triangulate about topics, and we're also most of us, myself, put this at the top of it, very difficult about trying to bring in and say, this is the topic I'm going to focus on because everything else is too broad. Uh, so we end up taking in a lot of noise on topics that perhaps we're, we're less interested in. Right. I'm not sure everyone is as interested in Trump, but um, the, the notifications, the, the anger, the hysteria, it gives them a way to continue to publish. Uh, and, and it won't be Trump, it will be a new topic in the coming era, and, and we can talk about that. But yeah. we're, we're almost at an hour here, and I know one of the topics we wanted to cover was this concept of securing the elections with better technology. Yeah. That's something that's very close to mind. Do you, um, you want to maybe cover that in part two to this podcast? You know, I think that that may be a good yeah. idea. I think there's enough meat there yeah. uh, t- to really dive into uh, and really, really chew on. So, yeah, I, that's a great idea. We'll, we'll, we'll continue that on, on another day. Um, I guess as, as we are coming up on the hour here, is there anything else you think that we didn't cover um, in terms of democracy, this idea of voting, why it's important, what to consider, uh, consent and systems? Um, anything else you think that we could we could talk about in the last 10, 15 minutes? Uh, you know, I, everything that I have left here in my notes is actually going into securing the election system. So I think I covered everything. I just... You know, I just kind of want to throw this out there is this is an issue that I think is really interesting. Um, I kind of joke around that, you know, I love politics. I have a love-hate relationship with politics. I love it because of just the absurdity of it. Um, But I hate it that it has such an impact on my life and it's something that I have to pay a lot of attention to. But this is one area that I think is really interesting is is this idea of what's the best way to govern people and what's the best way for Mm -hmm. us to govern ourselves. Um, so, you know, to the listeners, um, this is something I would really love to hear, uh, some feedback from people on and also maybe get some good articles or books that maybe we could look into to get more information on this. So if anyone has anything, definitely, um, hit, hit us up in the comments and, uh, maybe we can get more of a debate going about this. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I when you when you walk away from this idea that I was you know, my life, as I mentioned earlier, I'm raised this idea that we vote. It's part of our civic duty, and it's part of our engagement in a society. If you take a step back from that and start asking these types of questions, it opens up an entire landscape that you want to explore, that you want to ask questions about. And one of the areas that I find fascinating is game theory and Nash equilibriums. I came to those concepts. I mean, I think many of us have seen the the movie with Russell Crowe. Is that a beautiful mind? Beautiful mind. mind. And they talk about Nash equilibriums and that, but if you actually, the the best reading I ever did on one of those, and maybe it wasn't reading, it was a YouTube video, was from the Cardano project (laughs) and led by Charles Hoskinson, I believe is his name. But 
it's a it's a crypto based project, but they're doing a lot of work that's just pure research and understanding uh, gaming and how it actually operates between different actors. And when they when they discuss this concept of gaming and how the, the Nash equilibrium means that both parties are most incentivized to continue down the the, the, the path that is best for the system, rather than uh, I mean, the, the the cost to go anywhere else is just higher. You it started making me think a little bit about the games that are being played and you know within our government and our and our political institutions, and asking myself, are we are we have we reached Nash equilibrium or not? Right, and to me it seems as though there's a fairly good argument that we haven't, and we should be looking more into how we model these scenarios to understand how can we get to the right outcomes. Uh, not that it has to be, hey, someone produced a model, this is the output, everyone has to agree to it, but it seems like a, another analysis or part of the, the tool belt that should be part of the discussion. Yeah. Because from where I'm sitting, right now I feel very frustrated with the events of my country, in my country, and, and I don't think it's my country, I think it's all over the world you see frustration. And of course, after a year of being shut down, people are angry. And they want to get out there and they're asking more and more questions about their governments, as they should. They should always be asking questions about their governments. Um, and if you want to be asking those questions, we should also be asking ourselves, what are those solutions? And I, I think that looking at the gamification, how those games are played, um, I think Adolf Reed is someone else who's, who's talked a little bit about that, who's a, a much more of a left-leaning uh, philosopher and political scientist person, um, professor, is that, you know, his kinds of discussions would be areas I'd love to get into. And I, I agree with you, Scott. I would love for people to say, point you to different areas, um, different topics or different resources that we could read up on this topic. I, I, because it's it's going to continue to be a part of our lives. And I, I think it's something worth yeah. exploring. Yeah. Um, yeah. Two, two quick thoughts on the Nash Equilibrium. Uh, Bob Murphy, who's a, an Austrian economist, um, so he's heavily associated with the libertarian movement. Um, he did a, a great podcast kind of discussing what Russell Crowe got wrong in The Beautiful Mind, how he kind of, he got, and it's been a long time since I've seen The Beautiful Mind, and I'm not an expert on the Nash Equilibrium, but apparently there were some points um, that, that they got fairly wrong. So yeah. um, I'll put a link to that podcast episode in the show notes. Um, so if you do watch A Beautiful Mind, understand that maybe you're not going to get 100% of this. It's Hollywood, people. Right. It's Hollywood. Um, and also, you know, one thing, we can talk about this more on the next one, but one of the points that I had uh, when we talk about securing the election is, you know, I think one reason why there wasn't a huge push by the government to do more investigation into this election is that both sides have an incentive to maintain the system the way it is, even if it's flawed. Because uh, let's just be cynical and assume that there is voter fraud going on. Both sides are doing it. If you think that one side's doing it, the other side's not. You're 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 very foolish. <laughs> I would recommend to listen to our podcast over and over and over again to to uh, to understand that very rarely is one side going to be benevolent and the other side going to be evil. It's just there's too much of a gray area there. So it, it may be that in this instance, the Republicans came out on the losing side. But if you think that they are not going to just start coming up with ways to to take advantage of this complex black box, almost misunderstood system in the future so that they can win, uh, it, it, you would be wrong. So I don't think yeah. there's, and I don't know if that would actually be Nash Equilibrium, where they have an incentive to kind of keep the system the way it is. Um, but I think that's one of the reasons why we didn't see a bigger push um, for people to look deeper into our election system, um, just because both sides, they know that there's flaws in it, and they are more than willing to exploit those flaws for their own benefit. Yeah, well, I think a system could be designed with with unfavorable outcomes and still have a Nash equilibrium. Yeah, right. right. Being some structures being there, and I, that's that's what you alluded to. Right. The and I, I I agree. I am I have no illusions that any either party in this country, and, and I think it's fair to say in most countries, are they're going to operate off of the incentive structure that's going to keep them in power. 
And it's a question of what is the cost that we pay if we're caught in playing that game. And I, I don't think that we're going to see this go away. Even, even with technology changes, even with potential better visibility into information that is, you know, that's been kept secret. I mean, you know, getting better visibility into these voting systems would help. Uh, but there's still an incentive for, for those in power to maintain their, their power structure. Yeah, um, definitely. That's, but that's not going away, and that doesn't matter who, who's, who's in charge. Right. Well, if I was in so. charge, it would change, but, you know. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, well, if we were in charge, everything would be perfect. Perfect, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, well guys, thank you. We're going to do a part two of this in which we will go deep dive as far as we can into uh, ways and solutions of improving the election process to come up with the right uh, to better outcomes than what we have today. So until then, take care. We'll speak to you soon.